Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Candleland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Candleland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that's cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Innovation. Community. Flexibility. State-of-the-art. Integration. Linkages. Investing, coordination, stability. Cuba, North Korea, Kensington. These are some of the key terms to come out of Doug Ford's Monday morning announcement about the PC government's plan to allow private health facilities to start doing more surgeries and diagnostic scans in Ontario. To hear Doug Ford and Health Minister Sylvia Jones explain it, you'd think the plan to let for-profit clinics penetrate even deeper into the province's health infrastructure is both a brilliant, innovative idea and a long time coming. And and in some respects, that latter point is true. Much has been building up toward this. For every headline about overcrowded hospitals, surgical wait lists, and burnt-out nurses in a Canadian newspaper, there is, and always has been, a pack of anti-public health conservatives ready to tell us that the solution is right in front of our eyes. Let more private businesses into the healthcare space. But there's a good reason, uh, quite a few good reasons, actually, that the public at large and pretty much every political party to the left of the Conservatives have been alarmed by the specter of this happening. This month, we are going to talk about this happening. Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canada Land, and I often feel like the closest experience we get to the American healthcare system is taking our pets to the vet. Do you want to send this bump from your dog out for diagnostic testing? You got to weigh the health against bills, and it's ugh, it's, it's not fun. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queens Park Today, and my cat just fell behind the radiator into a crevice. Is she okay? Slight panic, but recovered. <laughs> so long as as your cat Rue is okay. This is and shall be Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. Let's start this episode by taking the temperature of Ontario's healthcare system. By all accounts, it's not going great. Hospitals are increasingly unable to handle any surge in patients, be it a COVID wave or a rough flu season. The major cause of this problem is a nursing shortage, which has been exasperated since Doug Ford took office, thanks to Bill 124, which has prevented nurses from getting raises beyond 1% per year, and the pandemic, which has caused mass burnout. 
The PCs have done a few things to try to wish this away, registering more foreign trained nurses, giving out $5,000 bonuses, and expanding nursing education programs. But alas, the problem remains acute. Another woe is the surgical backlog. According to the province, 206,000 Ontarians are currently waiting for surgery. And, you know, those waiting lists have been a complaint for years. In the past, governments have generally seen fit to throw money at the problem, increase funding for hospitals so they can run more procedures, build new facilities, or procure more MRI machines. Ontario spends around $74 billion per year on healthcare, which is by far the biggest portion of the budget. And as our population ages, this number is sure to climb. There's a consensus in conservative circles and, you know, maybe even beyond that, that the province can't just continue to pour money into the system because it's not getting results. And therefore, some kind of reform is needed. And for conservatives, well, I mean, regardless of the issue they're faced with, chances are they believe the free market is the answer. And further chances are that when they talk about the free market, what they really mean is that the government should be funneling money and privileges toward private businesses. And so, Monday morning, after days of leaks to the newspapers priming the public and stakeholders for the news, Ford and Health Minister Sylvia Jones announced what they call a three-step plan that better integrates and uses state-of-the-art facilities to speed up how quickly people are able to get surgeries and procedures using their health card. Meaning, they announced that for-profit businesses will soon be able to perform surgeries on the public dime, Oh, and that there won't be any safeguards in place to ensure that those private clinics don't upsell patients while they're in their care. Notably, the news release on the announcement does not include the words private or profit. Instead, we get 10 references to, quote, community surgical and diagnostic centers, which will, quote, be leveraged to provide cataract surgeries, MRI scans, and knee replacements. What the government is talking about is independent health facilities. A lot of these already exist in Ontario in the form of x-ray clinics or ultrasound clinics. There's even a few that do surgeries. So if you took Monday's news as the PCs presented it, you would infer that hospitals are too busy to do as many routine surgeries as are required, and that in the future, after a few pieces of legislation are passed, people who need surgery will be referred to off-site clinics for their procedures and that OHIP will cover all of the costs. New community and surgical diagnostic centers will get funding from the government and be required to have partnerships with hospitals to ensure oversight. But in classic Ford government fashion, uh, there were a lot of details that were not present in the announcement. In fact, you could say they were omitted. For instance, while some of the doctors at new surgical centers will have to retain active privileges to practice at their local hospitals, there's nothing in there to ensure that other key healthcare staff like OR nurses or anesthesiologists aren't siphoned away from the public health system. Uh, though I actually liked, liked the verb that Canadian press reporter Liam Casey arrived at in his question to Ford Monday morning. Wondering where the staffing is going to come from for these new surgical centers. How, do you, how are you going to ensure that the hospital systems aren't uh, pillaged? Compared to the current conditions of the public system, this could seem like a pretty tempting career move for a lot of Ontario health workers. But, you know, we don't actually know how much the people working at these future clinics will be paid. And I think we can assume that nurses, for instance, wouldn't automatically be part of the nursing union if they work at private centers. And this could well be the kind of thing where they could be lured out of the public system with higher wages that eventually, you know, as with everything, deteriorate. <sighs> Regardless, reporters were very curious about how the government planned to thwart at least the short-term pillaging. Can you please give us 
concrete examples of how you are going to prevent that from happening. So I want to start by reinforcing that the vast majority of new uh, nurses that were licensed in the previous uh, year, in fact, ended up being uh, hired and working within our hospital system. It is by far the number one employer of, health, of our healthcare nurses. I should hope so. Her, her actual answer to the question was that on the application form that new clinics will have to fill out, there will be a section in which they have to explain where they're getting their staff from. But even if an applicant were totally forthright about drawing staff away from the public system, it's not yet even clear what the consequence of such an admission would be. It's looking like the type of move that will likely reduce the number of publicly paid healthcare workers overall. You can imagine that five years down the line, if hospitals are no longer doing cataract surgeries, then they're being billed for fewer procedures and just ultimately have a more bare bones staff. Ford said they want to retain hospital space for the most difficult procedures, which makes sense. But hospitals in Ontario are nonprofit entities that work within their own budgets, which rely on government funding. That's all to say they have bottom lines and cheaper and easier surgeries are cheaper and easier for public hospitals to do too. Another interesting piece is that this whole announcement tackles a problem that isn't even the main problem facing hospitals right now. Uh, the biggest problem is staffing, not in and of itself the number of surgeries being done. That lack of staffing has been dragging down the number of procedures. When ERs were slammed in the early winter, some hospitals were warning about surgeries being put on hold because healthcare workers had to be redirected to help deal with people coming to the hospital with COVID, the flu, RSV. If there were more staff or just more general funding overall, hospitals could be doing more surgeries in the operating rooms that they already have, many of which aren't used to their full capacities because there either aren't the nurses or doctors around to do more surgeries or the hospitals just don't have the funding to pay them to do more. There's also the example of a pilot project the London Health Sciences Center undertook recently, which is basically what Doug Ford described today, but without any private component. The London Hospital has opened an ambulatory surgical center that does less complex day surgeries in a less intense operating room, which has been successful in ramping up the number of patients that can go under the knife. But scaling up that model is clearly not what the PCs want to do, because that would mean the province would have to pay for it all. And ideologically, let's be real, the conservatives would rather have private businesses take the reins. This does seem to be one of those pretty transparent cases of a public system being left to deteriorate, or arguably actively smashed to bits, so that private sector players can be called upon as supposed saviors. Goodness knows Ontario's healthcare system wasn't in the greatest shape before Ford took office. Remember End Hallway Healthcare? Ford campaigned on that in 2018 because hallway healthcare was a problem that was dogging Kathleen Wynne's government for a few years. Yeah, and while I don't think he solved the problem, I do give him some credit for being able to say that tongue twister over and over again. And I challenge our listeners to say end hallway healthcare again and again and again. It, 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 it's tricky. End hallway healthcare. 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 See, it, 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 you can't get an answer at the syllable. It's not the worst. I've been covering Queen's Park for a long time. <laughs> but after years of asphyxiating the system uh, through wage caps, through underfunding, through not even dispensing the actual money they budgeted, for it, the Ford government is once again donning the hot dog suit, looking for the guy who did this. At the press conference, both Ford and Jones kept hammering on the sorry state of the status quo. The Premier and our government have been clear. When it comes to your health, the status quo is not working. The past several years also taught us 
when it comes to your health, the health of all Ontarians, the status quo is no longer acceptable. My friends, as I said before, the status quo is not acceptable. You know, if we, we all know, you know, if we just leave the status quo and just leave it the way it is, you'll be talking to me next year and we'll still be at 206,000 backlog surgeries. The status quo is no longer acceptable, he says, after starving it for years. Yeah, that's not uncommon language at Queen's Park. Um, the Ford government is always blaming the status quo on the Kathleen Wynne government. And for months, honestly, before this announcement, there, there was all this talk from Ford and Jones and other ministers about innovation in the healthcare system, innovation, innovation, innovation. And as we see today, and I think um, as most people expected, innovation is, in this case, just letting private companies into the space. Yeah, I mean, Ford's attempt to like fix the deteriorating healthcare system is like that old woman in Spain who saw the deteriorating fresco of Jesus in the church and tried to engage in her own restoration work, drawing, turning it into like a little monkey type face. It's sort of, sort of like that. It's like, well, you you created something. It's not quite the same. It doesn't really quite do the same things. It's something, but I think really anyone could have done that. And it kind of feeds into something else I've been thinking a lot about: how innovation and economic growth kind of in recent years just feels tied to legalizing stuff that was previously illegal. Um, like think about cannabis legalization or the opening up of iGaming that, that Doug Ford government did. These sectors in Canada or Ontario were really all built off of what private company could get the most capital in order to be first out the gate when the product or storefront or app uh, was legalized. And I think we're about to just see the exact same thing repeated in the soon-to-blossom MRI clinic knee replacement industry. Yeah, your 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 comparison to the the legal cannabis market and to uh, internet gambling makes me think that healthcare will become yet another industry with billboards that are inexplicably black with bright green text on it. Or it's going to be more like surge in like med spas and Botox clinics in Toronto, which are all over the place now, but they have like blanked out windows like a cannabis store and you just kind of don't really know what they are like they have like weird skin names or med uh skin md type name and and they're oh. just like all over the place and there's been a huge proliferation of those too oh, is that what those are yeah fillers and botox baby seem to be knees and hips <laughs> as the health minister pointed out today this private surgery model has been undertaken before in provinces like saskatchewan and alberta so Allison, you have a reporter in Alberta, at least. Uh, how How's that been going for them? Yes, I tapped uh, Catherine Gakowski, Alberta Today reporter and uh, occasional backbench guest to get her thoughts on the matter. And, and I mean, first we can talk about Saskatchewan because they have been going this route for over a decade. I don't know this file by heart, but what seems to have happened is that for the first little while after they announced a private surgical initiative, it went great. The province spent a ton of money on it. Clinics opened, did a lot of surgeries. The backlog improved. But eventually once massive amounts of government funding dried up, the wait time stopped improving and started getting worse. And Saskatchewan is now in just as much of a pickle as it was 12 years ago when the surgical initiative launched. And it's spending more money on healthcare than ever. In Alberta, it's a bit too soon to tell the outcomes. Uh, but former Premier, UCP Premier Jason Kenney launched a, basically a carbon copy of Saskatchewan's model in 2020, and the UCP government has continued to expand it since. 
How it works there is that the province issues a request for proposals for a new surgery center in a certain region and then gives a contract and license to a company to open and operate it. Early on, there were news stories about orthopedic surgeons, developers, and lobbyists teaming up to try to grab these contracts. And that's what I very much expect to see in Ontario really soon. When Kenny announced an expansion of the surgery program last fall, the NDP opposition in Alberta pointed out that the length of time patients were waiting for surgery had actually increased since the initiative launched. Although, let's be fair, the pandemic is a caveat to that. And that doctors in Red Deer, which is Alberta's third largest city, were warning that surgical care in their city was on the brink of collapse because of the loss of anesthesiologists and nurses to private facilities. So in that case, like that happened fast. That's, you know, two years, which again is all to say that none of this in Ontario is new. The problems and flaws are the same everywhere. Time is a flat circle. Another concern that reporters asked Ford about at the press conference today was private clinics upselling their patients. Uh, For-profit companies, you know, have to make a profit after all. And asked about the possibility, Ford pointed to the success of the Kensington Eye Institute, the private clinic at the top of Kensington Market, where the press conference was being held. He conveniently didn't mention, though, that it's actually a not-for-profit enterprise. As the reporters kept asking, and eventually he tossed it over to uh, Health Minister Jones, who basically said, well, didn't really say that upselling isn't allowed, pointedly didn't say that, but if people have concerns about, you know, misleading practices or, you know, give, being given disingenuous information or being told to pay for things that they don't have to pay for, they can complain and the province will investigate, which is already the case. And of course, that also presumes that people know what practices are and aren't allowed on the part of a healthcare provider, and that there are avenues to complain. The Auditor General previously had looked at specifically this and said, no, the actual complaints probably represent a very small portion of this happening because most people just don't know what the rules are, what the avenues to register their official objection might be. Yeah. In her 2021 report, the Auditor General had a whole value for money audit on this where she engaged mystery shoppers to call private eye clinics and asked how much various surgeries cost from that report. We noted that it's very difficult for the average consumer to obtain complete pricing information. Almost all clinics that the mystery shoppers contacted said that no pricing list should be shared without undergoing a consultation. But some did share price ranges, with cataract surgeries using specialty lenses costing the patient anywhere from $450 to almost $5,000 per eye. Some clinics also indicated that specialty lenses are or may be mandatory, depending on the surgeon's assessment, which is misleading since all patients have the right to receive publicly funded cataract surgery without paying extra costs for any add-ons. There's something about that kind of having to deal with sales tactics when seeking medical treatment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. seems, yeah, it definitely seems morally, ethically objectionable, certainly morally objectionable. And the fact that we're going to be opening, not, I mean, not just opening the door to more of this, but seemingly encouraging it, knowing that this is an issue, the government really wasn't interested in tackling the issue when the Auditor General raised it. And now they're going to be creating many, many, many more opportunities for this to happen. It's not surprising, but it's such a disregard for patients that it's practically contemptuous. And see, that is where, like, I think about, like, conservatives that love this idea. 
you like you're a conservative guy or woman or like you think ideologically this is better. You think you'll get faster medical service under a more privatized system. You think, well, if there's any kind of charge, I have enough money to pay for it or I have some private insurance. But it's like wealthy people in the United States freaking hate their healthcare insurance too. They like all of this stuff is bullshit that everyone has to deal with, even if you're rich, I guess is what I'm saying. Not the ultra rich. The quite rich, like or the quite the well-off, the normal well-off still have to deal with the bullshit. The ultra-rich don't. So maybe this is sort of a matter of people sort of misunderstanding where they themselves would sit in this hierarchy and not realizing that even for regular rich people, this is kind of frustrating. You gotta be really fucking rich before you can actually sort of opt out of the normal barriers to care. Along with the history of some of the tactics of private cataract clinics, we also have a ready example in the Shouldice Clinic, which is a private hospital in Thornhill that performs hernia operations. Shouldice is one of a very small number of private hospitals, like three or four, that were legacied into Ontario's healthcare system in the 1970s. Since then, no other ones have been allowed to be created, which kind of coincided, that, that time frame coincided with the creation of OHEP. So like Doug Ford's newly proposed surgical clinics, procedures at Shouldice are covered by OHIP. So if you get referred there by your doctor, your hernia surgery is free. Except with the caveat that Shouldice requires you to stay at its facility for three nights. In most cases, hernia surgery is just a day surgery in the rest of Ontario's hospitals, so you stay there zero nights. According to Shouldice's website, OHIP covers the cost of Ontario residents to stay in public ward rate hospital accommodation, quote, uh, which is about $400 a night, and that semi-private rooms are available at an additional cost. So I've never stayed at this clinic. I don't know. I've seen them give quotes to media outlets where they say that patients have to pay for their stay. I don't know whether... Like some patients stay covered by OHIP, but most of them stay in semi-private rooms. It's a little bit hard to tell from the outside, but either way, I think the semi-private room is like an add-on. So either way, OHIP is paying at least $1,200 just for a patient to spend three nights in this fancy private hospital in Thornhill, which is kind of like ironic because if you remember, the PCs recently passed a bill that said that anyone who is an alternate level of care patient in a hospital has to start paying to stay in the hospital if they don't agree to get sent to any long-term care home in the province like immediately. So those patients have to pay for themselves. But if you want to stay in the fancy hernia hospital, you get it paid for, which is all to say that like, I don't also think staying three nights in the hernia hospital for no reason is fun. Like if I was getting into surgery I would want to go home, not be forced to stay in a hospital for no reason. So yeah, this hospital is pretty fancy. I mean, it doesn't look like a hospital. It looks like, I don't know, it looks like a place that would have horses, frankly. It does. But still, semi-private room, you're sharing a room with somebody. I don't want to do that. I mean, it seems kind of like they coerce you into staying. Like they have this whole thing about like patient-focused recovery, which like maybe that is good. Maybe we should have better recovery times for surgery. But I mean, again, if the government's whole goal is to like, save money and like be efficient, this isn't it. So it's a mixing and muddling. And again, just adding more layers of kind of confusion to a system that is already hard to navigate. 
So yeah, Ford and, and the health minister were asked again and again, as we said, what safeguards be in place to ensure patients are taken advantage of. And, you know, they said you could complain. But, you know, the ministry doesn't even have oversight of like the additional fees that, <laughs> that physicians charge patients. So that's not, that's not even a thing they look at or keep track of or do. Leaving it up to the private sector to, to make its own rules is such a... It's pretty deeply ideological, I, w- I would say. Wouldn't you say so, Allison? I mean, Doug Ford said today on Twitter that the days of endless ideological debates are over, um, of which he, of course, meant the the private healthcare debate. For one, there's no way that's true. Uh, I think the private healthcare debate is going to be hotter than ever. And we already mentioned Alberta and Saskatchewan, like Google Alberta plus private surgery clinic, and you're going to see a thousand news articles about it or Saskatchewan, the same thing. The debate rages on. So good luck with that, Ford. But speaking of ideology, I, you know, we've alluded to it and I, and I think it's worth saying that like conservatives across Canada are going to be celebrating this week. Even if Doug Ford has never personally made public health care his own bugaboo, he's surrounded by people who hate it. Like conservatives really, really hate it. Any step away from the current system is a win for them. Many will likely agree the U.S. system is bad, but they'll point to semi-private systems like Singapore or Australia as models that Canada should follow. And, like, that's not to say our current healthcare system is perfect or even that good. I don't think it is. It's really expensive. There's long waits. Few people have family doctors, and there's just always seems to be a crisis, which is annoying. But... It's unclear to me how adding the profit motive to it, while the public purse still pays all the costs, is going to help. And we're recording this Monday night, so uh, the news has had a little bit of time to simmer. And I read a couple of the first columns that have come out about it. And the argument that people seem to be making is like, well, they have to try something. Like, let's make see if this works. Maybe it'll help a few people. And it's like, that's very much not what Doug Ford said he's doing. Like, this is a permanent change, is what he said, that this is going to roll out over a number of years and keep growing and expanding. It's not like a little test pilot. Like, it's a, a sea change. And to suggest that he's just like trying something out is not what's happening because we talked about the capital and the money that's going to start flowing for this stuff. That's going to be real. And those contracts are going to be real. And there's no like, it's going to be a lot more work to shut down than it is to open the floodgates. It's definitely one of those cases where they're counting on this idea that people just want decent, at least decent health care quickly and safely, and they don't really care how that happens. And I think in the sense that, you know, goodness, if an individual needs an operation or something, and then I'm pretty sure like they'll generally take the first thing that, yeah, they'll be happy for the first opportunity that comes available. I really don't know. I do wonder if this may be another case where they've sort of overshot or become overconfident or so stuck in their own bubble that they underestimate the extent to which Ontarians do see through this. The reason that the the system is so shitty is because of this government and previous governments failing to invest in it and even just breaking it apart. They've they've you know they've let it and in the case of this government at least deliberately let it fall to get to this point. And now they're looking to build it back up in a way that is seems to be measurably worse or certainly not without severe 
downsides that opens it up to all the things that we don't want to happen the capitalization of medicine to a degree that we haven't that this country hasn't seen in decades perhaps i feel like canada is not prepared for the identity crisis let alone the actual crisis that will unfold once our healthcare system is no longer meaningfully better than the united states what are we then? And I feel like that's, I mean, that is the direction we're heading. I mean, we're, you know, as much as Ford emphasizes you'll never have to pay with a credit card, it's also very clear that there are things that you will be asked to pay for with a credit card. And, you know, the government's kind of cool with that, with making healthcare a, a sort of a premium product, at least to a greater degree than it already is in these little bits and pieces. Like taking the most obnoxious parts of the healthcare system as it currently exists and just like multiplying that by 10, throwing open the doors to the free market. But as for conservatives being in their bubble, where people are inherently distrustful of the public system, not just in practice, but in principle, I mean, Doug Ford just dropped this this line in the press conference, uh, or I mean, it was in response to some actually decent question, but it wasn't an direct answer. One CEO, and I won't name him, said, you know what sort of, uh, there's only two places in the world that have the healthcare that we have, the same system, is Cuba and North Korea. I'm like, Really? We need to we need to improve. So it seems that 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 idea that that Canada is in a is in a boat with Cuba and North Korea seems to date from like 1995. Looks like it was popularized by a reform MP named Grant Hill, who was a medical doctor, but who also happened to believe that homosexuality was a, a risk factor for illness and voted against gay rights on those grounds. Although it seems like the first, the oldest reference I can find was actually from an Edmonton Journal article from the start of 1995 from a dermatologist who, as it turns out, just a few years ago was. Uh, uh, reprimanded for misconduct. That's the short history of this conservative meme, and this the idea that the fact that our current system is compared to authoritarian countries is something and that communist countries. I think that's the implication. It's an implication against communism. Ah, that is that is the case. That is the case. There's a history of like recent weird anti-communism stuff in Canada, like Stephen Harper's monument he wanted to build to the victims of communism. Like, that's kind of the first thing I thought of when Doug mm. Ford said that. It's all to say, I don't even know who that plays with. It's obviously a weird reference. It plays to the, the insiders. It signals who he talks to. The people around him would say those things. As a last point, I think a lot of very Doug Ford things are kind of in confluence here. One, he, like, remember, he just got reelected six months ago, seven months ago. He did not campaign on this by any means. He didn't campaign on opening the green belt. And he's doing it anyways. And I think we've talked about this with, like, how Doug Ford gets covered in the media uh, lately or in the past at least half of the time he's been in office. I feel like that's kind of coming into play again. Like we've we talk about this with with Kathleen Wynne as well, but if like she broke election promise, like where's the break election promise headlines, you know? That's kind of what I'm I'm thinking about. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean you don't campaign on anything concrete when you campaign on just broad Campaigned on building a highway. Yeah, when you campaign on, you know, a handful of infrastructure projects plus just general general broad notions of getting it done, 
I mean, you can later make it anything, right? I mean, it's uh, the the it can be anything. There's nothing really to call call them out on. It's like we're saying you're gonna get done. We're we're getting it done. We didn't say what the it was. I was talking. I was being interviewed by uh, a journalism student the other day and talking about the evolution of political rhetoric over the past few decades. And yeah, I'm really getting to the interesting point that how so much political speech has become so deliberately become broad and diffuse and almost not entirely meaningless, but more about notions and sentiments simply because those are much harder to fact check. They're much harder to push back on. If you're not stating any or asserting anything as fact, it's much harder to call bullshit on someone's intentions or sentiments or what's going on in their head. Doug Ford is an epitome of that, right? He's all about Vibes. <laughs> vibes, yeah. He's he's all about vibes. And I would argue that what he's doing right now is consistent with those vibes. Anything that's consistent with the vibes, he can pretty much, if not get away with necessarily, then at least try out. And it's not necessarily taking anyone by surprise. I don't know. I, it, it's He's sort of this, I wouldn't say it's a man of mystery, since I don't think he has any, I think he has very little real depth. But it's more... I don't know, vote for me and, you know, I'll do stuff. See what I'll do. I'd love to contrast this actually with like how Jason Kenney would have announced this back in 2020, because Jason Kenney is very much the opposite politician than Ford, because he just loves to explain everything, little details and his thought process behind things. He would totally talk about North Korea and Cuba, but like unabashedly and and know what he meant by it. Um, And I, I feel like it would be... I feel like it must have been a very different press conference. Again, Ford didn't even admit it, right? He didn't even, like, they didn't even say today, we're privatizing surgical care, right? They danced around it in every possible way they could and and just kept calling them new clinics. It's new. We'll make contracts with new new clinics as if, you know, that's all that needed to be said because it's been being leaked to the media for four days to soften the blow. Like, God, I know this playbook. So the surgical waitlist won't disappear, and staffing shortages in hospitals will probably only continue to get worse, but a few people will get pretty rich, and Ford will be able to keep his donors happy. Time is a flat circle. And now it's time for Foreseeable Disaster of the Month. Allison, what is your foreseeable disaster this month? I'm going to keep mine simple, and I'm uh, pouring one out for the cormorants today. The Pointer reported a very good story about something I really actually did want an update on. The province two years ago, Doug Ford made it legal for basically, I think you can kill up to 15 cormorants per day anywhere in Ontario, other than the city of Toronto, as uh, John Tory had to remind everybody, because you can't fire a a gun in the city. Anywhere else, more or less, you can shoot uh, cormorants at will. And it turns out the province has not been keeping track whatsoever about how many of these birds are being culled and uh, lots of their, if not all of their data for why we need to be able to kill so many cormorants is not very ingenuous. And I just feel bad for biodiversity. What does the pro-hunting cormorants lobby look like? What is, what is that? And there must it's be people. The anglers and hunters. Do they like really hate cormorants or did they just really want something from them? No, people really hate cormorants because ah. their nests kill trees and make trees look really ugly. Uh, and they, 
um, shit everywhere. If you know the part of Tommy Thompson Park in Toronto, the Leslie Spit, kind of the end of it, the part you can see from Ward's Beach on the Toronto Island is just looks like a ton of dead trees covered in birds. That's a cormorant nesting ground. So they do kind of make everything look like Beetlejuice <laughs> in a bad way. But they're native birds to Ontario. Like they should be allowed to live here. There's not actually any scientific evidence as to the fact that they're actually destroying the environment other than like aesthetically. But uh, lots of people in, in rural areas and that live on water don't like looking at them. So that's kind of why they're the target. Oh my goodness, I love, we should, I'd love to spend some time collecting all this anti-cormorant propaganda because I imagine there's a lot of it and this probably sounds very funny. And what's your foreseeable disaster, Jono? Well, Allison, so over the holidays or like just before Christmas, Doug Ford released another cooking video. In this one, he he, he showed how, you know, he said he liked to bake and decorate holiday treats. How you doing, everyone? I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. I'll, I'll tell you, at our family... Uh, we love baking. I love baking cookies. As you can tell, I haven't missed too many Christmas cookies. But we're going to uh, put some icing on here. We're going to decorate the cookies. These are great sugar cookies. Okay, we're going to use... Yeah, basically, it's cookies, Christmas cookies. Okay, sure, fair enough. Doug Ford, Christmas cookies, a couple days before Christmas, fine. But I mean, in the video, he doesn't actually bake the cookies. He doesn't even pretend to bake the cookies. The cookies are already, the just basic sugar cookies are already sitting in front of him, already baked. Someone else has done all the work. He just kind of like lightly decorates them and quite literally puts a little smiley face on it. And so my foreseeable disaster is that Doug Ford will continue to add the folksy smiley face to the subpar products that other people produce. I couldn't even watch that one. I was like, nope, I don't care if this is my job. <laughs> I don't want to watch this guy cook anymore. <laughs> well, the thing is, that's the thing is he's not he's not cooking. Someone else mm -hmm. has done all the work. I, I mean, maybe the cookies are good. They don't look really especially good. But like, someone else has done all the work. He's just the person who's brought it at the end to decorate it with a happy face. And like that feels like the most Doug Ford type of cooking video there is. No actual cooking being done, just, just the last presentation elements. And even those are done very poorly. Folks, folks, folks. And that was Wag the Doug, a show about Cuba, North Korea, and cataracts. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. You can find me on Twitter at Goldsby and on Mastodon at something like Goldsby. But if you can spell my name, you can probably find me there. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. I don't have Mastodon, but it does make me sad to hear that you're tweeting there or whatever, tooting there, and I don't get to read your toots, but I'm still not joining. Sorry. My producer is Katie Lore. Andre Pru is our production coordinator, and this is his last show with us. Congratulations on, on your baby, Andre. Uh, and our theme music, as always, is a remix by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener supported. Go to canadaland.com slash join to help us keep this podcast going. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canadaland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. 
We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.